Welcome to the Heart of a Friend. This is Andy Wygand, and thanks for joining me for part four on this journey we're taking through the Lord's Prayer. Well, it's now 2021, and I'm recording this early in January. Before I begin uh, this episode, I wanted to pause, take a moment, and reflect briefly on this past year. It's been an extraordinary year, and not in the good sense. Our own recent Christmas celebration as a family was intentionally downsized due to precautions about the spread of the virus. Just one out of a number of cherished traditions, celebrations, expectations, and other plans that have been disrupted, scaled back, or eliminated this past year. I think we all grieve over the various losses that we've experienced. But my heart and my prayers go out especially to so many who've suffered far more seriously. You may be among them. And I sincerely pray right now that our Father in Heaven will touch your heart today. May His Holy Spirit be a source of comfort, healing, strength, provision, encouragement, wisdom, and hope wherever they're needed in your life. My mother used to remind our family at the beginning of each new year with this word of encouragement, and it goes something like this. I said to the man at the gate of the year, give me a light that I might tread safely into the unknown. He replied, go into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. It shall be to you better than any light and safer than any known way. As we've all been reminded this past year, there are no guarantees as we walk into the unknown. We hope things will get better soon, but so much is out of our control. So the best thing we can do is to begin by putting our hand into the hand of God. It will be better to us than any light, and safer than any known way. And now, part four of the Lord's Prayer. So here's a question a young boy once asked God. Dear God, there are bad things that happen in our neighborhood. I think this is kind of a bad world. Do a lot of bad things happen in your neighborhood? Most of us would probably be in agreement with this boy's take on things. The litany of the world's specific troubles may change from year to year, but there's always a long and heartbreaking list. This has often led to some nostalgic yearning for the good old days, when, as we remember it, life was simpler, more peaceful, and easier. If only we could turn back the clock. However, Steven Pinker, in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, talks about the decline of of violence and tells us more than we would ever want to know about the subject in 700 pages or so. But he argues convincingly that there's no reason to look back with nostalgia on the good old days. Quote, We now know that native peoples whose lives are so romanticized in today's children's books had rates of death from warfare that were greater than those of our world wars. The romantic visions of medieval Europe omit the exquisitely crafted instruments of torture and the thirty-fold greater risk of murder in those times. 
The centuries for which people are nostalgic were times in which children as young as eight could hang for property crimes. Witches could be sawn in half, and a sailor could be flogged to a pulp. The moral commonplaces of our age, that slavery, war, and torture are wrong, would have been seen as saccharine sentimentality. Our notion of universal human rights, almost incoherent. Genocide and war crimes were absent from the historical record only because no one at the time thought they were a big deal. On top of all the benefits that modernity has brought us, in health, experience, and knowledge, we can add the reduction of violence. End quote. Look, no one is happy about the world the way it is. But turning back the clock is not the answer. The answer does not lie in looking back. The answer lies in looking ahead. And this is the focus of this part of the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This part of the prayer expresses our longing for a better world, shaped not by politicians, but by the Prince of Peace himself. This part of the prayer evokes hope for the future. Well, there's a lot to unpack here in this petition, and I'm going to take two episodes to cover it. As we've done so far in our leisurely drive through the prayer, we'll pull over at this scenic overlook and take in the vistas that open up to us here. These few short lines tell us a lot about what the future holds, and they give us insight into our own mission in this world. But first, a quick note. Is this one petition or two? The traditional approach to these words is to understand may your kingdom come as one prayer and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven as the second. I've tried but struggled to see it that way. While I'm reluctant to diverge from tradition, it makes the most sense to me to understand these two phrases as saying the same thing. Each helps to clarify the other. What does it mean for God's kingdom to come? The second phrase explains. It means that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Things may be bad in our neighborhood, but they're not in his. And This prayer simply asks that what's happening in God's neighborhood will become the same as what's happening in ours. The two parts of this petition are saying essentially the same thing. Support for this conclusion can be found from the Gospel of Luke. His version of this prayer, found in chapter 11, just has, Your kingdom come. It does not have, Your will be done. Well, that's because this second phrase is not essential to the meaning of the petition. This part of the prayer is one cry, expressed in two ways. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Two ways to state one prayer an appeal for a better world, where God rules, where righteousness, peace, and joy prevail over all our brokenness and shortcomings. It's difficult to overstate the importance of this kingdom theme in the Bible. There are 66 books in the Bible written over a period of 1,000 plus years, 1,189 chapters, 30,000 plus verses, dozens of authors, but one story. And if there's a phrase that could be used to summarize the plot line of the Bible, it'd be this one, the kingdom of God. If there's a phrase that connects every story, 
creates the context for every teaching in the Bible would be this, the kingdom of God. If there's a phrase that captures the hope of every leader, prophet, and Jesus himself, it would be this, the kingdom of God. So when Jesus instructs us to pray, your kingdom come, he is inviting us into the mainstream, the meta-narrative of God's work in the world. Now, if we were asked to summarize Jesus' teaching with a phrase or a verse, we might come up with the answers like, love your neighbor or the golden rule. But the very first words out of his mouth at the beginning of his ministry recorded for us in three out of four Gospels were these. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus used the phrase kingdom of God more than any other. It's a phrase that defines the very heart of Jesus' message and mission. So, When he instructs us to pray, your kingdom come, again, he's inviting us into the mainstream of his own work in the world. From the beginning of the Bible, in the first chapter of Genesis, Adam and Eve were assigned to rule over all the earth. Theirs was a kingdom, and they were vassal kings and queens, ruling over a kingdom on behalf of God himself. The world was a kingdom given to humankind, and then, tragically, lost. Our neighborhood was no longer like God's. But the rest of the story of the Bible is about God's initiative to reestablish this kingdom, to make our neighborhood like his once again. And by the end of the Bible, we read, at last, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of Christ, and his servants shall reign forever and ever. So between the beginning of the Bible, the first chapter of Genesis, and the end, the last chapter of Revelation, we've come full circle. At the beginning, the kingdom was forfeited. At the end, the kingdom is restored. And when Jesus instructs us to pray, your kingdom come, he's placing us right in the mainstream of this drama. Now, to pray this prayer about the kingdom in the right way requires us to consider two time frames. One is the present and one is the future. One is today and one is the more distant horizon. What I mean is that the New Testament teaches the visible power of God's kingdom has already invaded the world. The invasion began with Jesus and it continues to be in progress today with us, his expeditionary force, so to speak. The kingdom's an active and growing reality in our world today, but the kingdom is not present in its fullness. That has to wait for the return of Christ. That's the final win, the final chapter of the book of Revelation, for which we long and pray. So God's kingdom is both here and still to come. It's already present, but not yet here in its fullness. So when we pray this part of the prayer, we have to consider these two time frames, today and the more distant horizon, the present work and the future win. In this episode, let's talk about praying for the future win. We'll talk about praying for the present work in the next episode of this podcast. To pray for the kingdom of God to come is to pray about our future win. It's to pray for the fulfillment of a mouth-watering vision given to us in the Bible. Quote, 
The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death or mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And I saw a river of the water of life and the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." and the wolf will dwell with the lamb. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war, with no one to make them afraid. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. End quote. Mouthwatering for sure. We've probably heard some of these phrases many times and can't help but long for the day when they will be fulfilled. No wonder one of the earliest prayers in the life of the church was the Aramaic phrase, Maranatha, which literally means, Our Lord, come. Or as the end of Revelation puts it, Come, Lord Jesus. This was not only their hope, but it's ours. We want what's happening in God's neighborhood to become what's happening in ours. It's the longing of our hearts. This is why Jesus instructs us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But this raises a question, at least for me. Can we, by our prayers for his coming, make it happen any sooner? When we pray for the coming of the kingdom, can we actually accelerate the timetable? I'll be back in just a few moments to consider this question. So, can we, by our prayers for Jesus' coming, make it happen any sooner? When we pray for the coming of his kingdom, can we actually accelerate the timetable? My impression from the scripture is that there's already a timetable established. Jesus said it's not for us to know, but the Father has fixed this by his own authority. Paul says similarly that he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world. So it's true we don't know when these events are going to happen, but it doesn't sound like God is still figuring it out or that his mind is subject to change on this. So if, if this is the case, then what's the point of praying for this to happen? Why is this petition so prominent in the Lord's Prayer? Well, here's my thought. This prayer probably doesn't do anything to recalibrate God's timetable, but it does recalibrate our hearts. It probably doesn't cause God to reprogram his prophetic calendar but it does reprogram our own worldview. The prayer is not so much for him as it is for us. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, we're aligning our hearts with God's heart and his declared destiny for the world. We're lifting our eyes from our problems to his promises. We're expressing a God-given longing for a better world. We're expressing our conviction that one day God will fulfill his promises. This is the hope of the gospel. 
I think about it this way. Over 40 years ago, I proposed to the woman who was to become my wife. It was this summer, and we fixed a date for the wedding to take place December 18th, about six months away. I couldn't wait. I counted the days and prayed that time would pass quickly. There was nothing I could do to accelerate the timetable, but I would have made a pretty poor groom if I hadn't wished and prayed for the time to come sooner. I had a natural and healthy longing for December 18th to arrive. That expectation shaped my thoughts, feelings, and behavior. It brought me joy and kept me planning and preparing for our future together. So it is with this Christian hope. Keeping it before our eyes gives us joy and keeps us planning and preparing for our ultimate future. Peter put it this way, quote, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. End quote. Well, one way to help us do that is to pray like Jesus taught us. May your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Unfortunately, most of us have our hope fixed on other things. The weekend, our next vacation, the success of our children, growing our bank accounts, a new purchase, enjoying something new on Netflix or Disney+, Plus, a change of seasons or a change of jobs. The list goes on. It's one of the reasons we find ourselves on an emotional roller coaster. Our happiness is held hostage to the changing circumstances of our lives, which are out of our control most of the time. So we stress out trying to gain or maintain control, but ultimately we can't. And the result? Anxiety, hypertension, depression, frustration, anger, and out-of-control behaviors of our own. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to enjoy this life to the extent that we can, but the reality is our truest joy and fulfillment will not come in this life. Therefore, we're told to fix our hope on the salvation to come, to pray your kingdom come. This hope gives us a baseline of joy and confidence. This baseline serves as an emotional buffer, stabilizes us against the inevitable disappointments we all experience. So the New Testament teaching about our hope, far from being irrelevant, is one of the most practical teachings. A few examples should help make this point. Let me give you four. One, hope like this gave the early church courage. Paul writes, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. He was willing to take courageous risks, even with his life, because from his perspective, to die was an advantage. Two, hope like this enabled the early church to endure hardships with perseverance. The writer of Hebrews says Jesus endured the cross because of the joy set before him. There's a light at the end of the dark tunnel of his suffering, and there's a light at the end of ours. Three, hope like this inspired obedience and motivation to live for Christ and serve him. After teaching about the resurrection hope, Paul encourages the Corinthians, therefore, to be steadfast and immovable and to throw themselves into God's work. Four, hope like this can bring great comfort and encouragement, even in the most dire of circumstances. 
Philip Yancey tells the story of a German prisoner of war camp at the end of World War II. Quote, Unbeknownst to the guards, the Americans built a makeshift radio. One day, news came that the German high command had surrendered, ending the war. A fact that, because of a communication breakdown, the German guards did not yet know. As word spread, a loud celebration broke out. For three days, the prisoners were hardly recognizable. They sang, waved at guards, laughed at the German shepherd dogs, and shared jokes over meals. The fourth day, they awoke to find that all the Germans had fled, leaving the gates unlocked. The time of waiting was over. The point for me here is that the circumstances for the prisoners hadn't changed. They were the same, but the psychology of the prisoners had been transformed. There was a baseline of joy and expectation that wasn't there before. They knew their captivity would soon be at an end. That hope changed everything. And every time we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are reminded that one day our time of waiting will be at an end. Our captivity will be over. As an old song chorus said it, we win, we win, hallelujah, we win. I read the back of the book and we win. We can have a baseline for joy and a confidence regardless of our circumstances. So this reminder in the Lord's Prayer about our future is not as impractical as we might first think. On the contrary, it's one of the most life-changing teachings of the New Testament. This part of the Lord's Prayer is a gift. It lifts our eyes off of ourselves and our circumstances and directs our sight toward the horizon of God's promises. Nothing could be more therapeutic and encouraging. Florence Chadwick was the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. On July 4, 1952, she attempted another first, to set the speed record for swimming from Catalina Island to the California coast, approximately 25 miles. The water was numbingly cold, the fog so thick she could hardly see the boats in her party. Sharks had to be driven away with rifle fire. She swam more than 15 hours before she asked to be taken out of the water. Her trainer tried to encourage her to swim on since they were so close to land. But when Florence looked, all she could see was fog. So she quit, only a half mile from her goal. Later, she said, I'm not excusing myself, but... If I could have seen the land, I might have made it. It wasn't the cold or fear or exhaustion that caused Chadwick to fail. It was the fog. Two months after her failure, she walked off the same beach into the same channel and swam the distance, setting a new speed record. All because she could see the land. This part of the Lord's Prayer lifts the fog. It helps us to see where we're going. It brings the land ahead into our line of sight. The coming kingdom is a mouth-watering reality that keeps us going. It inspires us to endure, to hang in there, to finish the race. It gives us joy, even when there may be little reason for it in our immediate neighborhood. It reminds us that we win. We win. Hallelujah, we win. 
I read the back of the book, and we win. It's about the day when God's neighborhood becomes ours, and our neighborhood becomes like His. It's not about looking back with nostalgia. It's about looking ahead with confident hope. One day, all God's promises will be fulfilled. So we echo the cry of the early church, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But we're not done with this part of the prayer. We have to consider both of the two time frames, the future, which we just covered, and the present. In this episode, we looked at the distant horizon. But in the next episode, we need to shift our gaze to the present. The invasion of our world, which began with Jesus, continues today through his expeditionary force, which is the church. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, applies not just to the future win, but to the present work of the church. While our prayers may not change the timetable of the arrival of the future coming kingdom, our prayers are critically important for the present work of God's kingdom in the world today. Here on earth, prayer changes things. When we pray about the present work of God's kingdom in the world today, it's as if by faith we enter into the heavenly war room, the strategic command center. This is when we pray for others. This is when our prayers begin to reach around the world. This is when we find out how we can make a difference. This is when we listen for our own next assignment. This is when we discover how we're meant to be deployed as a part of the most important work in the world. Join me next time as we continue to look at this part of the Lord's Prayer and how it relates to the present work of God's kingdom. As always, highlights are available at the end of each episode. To keep up with future episodes, please consider subscribing. And remember, we are destined for more than what we've become. This is from the heart of a friend.